Hello and welcome to another episode of Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. I'm Joe Schumacher once again. I'm here with uh, Misha Smirnov. How's it going, Misha? What's up, buddy? Um, so we got a cool episode today. Um, we're talking to um, somebody who's who's uh, a developer of a really popular neuroscience tool right now, and uh, we're going to hear all of the uh, details of the origins of Deep Lab Cut and all the cool applications it has. Um, uh, I think we're going to have a, a pretty motor control centric episode today, hopefully, um, something we don't talk about a lot on the show. Um, but today's guest, uh, she is principal investigator and a Roland fellow at the Roland Institute at Harvard University. Starting in August, she'll be uh, assistant professor at EPFL in Switzerland. Uh, Mackenzie Mathis, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So um, this is actually your second time here at Max Planck, Florida, I think. The, the first time correct. you're here is 2016. You're actually doing the first alumni lecture. Uh, they invented a new type of lecture just for you. Um, <laughs> just to just so we could plug it on this podcast, basically. Uh, <laughs> right. that the Perfect. imaging course went so well for you four years ago exactly. that now you have this amazing position and these accomplishments and, uh, and you're teaching. So you're welcome, <laughs> um, Thank first you of all. Um, Very honored to be here. So... Um, so Deep Lab Cut is is huge right now. It's been written up in the Atlantic and Bloomberg. Uh, it's this open source uh, software package for. Well, I'll have you explain it. What is what is the the basic job of Deep Lab Cut? Yeah. So the premise of Deep Lab Cut is an open source software package that allows you to track animals or objects in any circumstance that you want. Namely, if you can see it, you can automate it by a machine learning method. So primarily in neuroscience, it's really used to replace uh, sort of this tedious manual laboring, which has been the ground truth, like gold standard for many, many years in neuroscience experiments, as you guys probably are aware. Um, and so the idea essentially is you can use this to train a supervised algorithm to essentially have a machine do this for you and get rid of the human labeling aspect of that work. So, uh, you know, things um, to track animals using software and cameras and stuff kind of existed. Yes. Uh, so where did you come into this? Did you Were you faced with a, a scientific question that you couldn't answer with what existed or were you brought on more from like a computer vision side of things? Yeah, that's a great question. So this was really driven from uh, a need that I couldn't fulfill in the laboratory. So I can tell you a little bit about that. But uh, in general, we came into just looking at existing softwares, because you're right, of course, machine learning has been around for a long time. There's been other methods to do you know, background subtraction or literally tracking, i.e. having a moving object that a computer can then follow. Um, but it wasn't possible really before the advent of deep learning to train classifiers in these more complex settings uh, to do this. So we certainly didn't invent deep learning or any of the real tools that we used. It was a matter of us seeing if these were really useful tools uh, in the field or so in the lab. So you were studying uh, mouse motor control at this point. That's right. So what were the kind of biological questions that you were asking when uh, what like what do you need to what do you need to track animals for? <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, so during my Ph.D., I was <clears throat> really interested in understanding skilled reaching, actually. Um, and in particular, you know, how neural circuits can enable this reaching in a learning context. Um, but I ended up turning to using joysticks because you had really good sp spatial temporal control over um, the animal's sort of end effector, namely the hand in this case of a mouse. 
Um, because it was really actually hard to track the digits of this very tiny object like a mouse, or you can think of even something smaller like a fly. I just happened to work on mice at the time. And in general, they're sort of these, you know, featureless blobs with these fur coats on. You can't really see the, mo the bones and the muscles that you're actually interested in studying. Um, and it was very, very hard to, say, put a marker on an animal, like a little reflective marker, which is very standard in humans, right? <clears throat> Like humans are very compliant. We get in front of a green screen, we'll put on these suits, and then you get avatars, right? But that's very hard to have a mouse wear a costume. In fact, uh, not not possible. So, I mean, when you're thinking about trying to digitize the position of like maybe knuckles on a mouse's hand or something really small, I've seen some of the videos of what DeepLab can do. It's, it's amazing. You, you basically have, you know, it tracking the points of all these ind individual, you know, locations on the digits of the mouse and you actually get a real i think appreciation I've, I've never worked with mice but i had no idea how almost human like like when they grab <laughs> something it is it's it's there seems like a lot of detail there that would go unnoticed basically um so you know in order to train deep lab cut to find those points for you like what is this sort of workflow like how much data do you need how you know how much do you have to sort of point at the individual points you want how, how does training it sort of work from a user perspective? Right. So that was really the challenge when we came into this field is that, you know, we, uh, you know, Alex uh, Mathis and I co-developed Deep Lab Cut. And so we, he also had a biological question he needed to answer. So that's actually why we teamed up to work on this. Um, but looking at the human field of the so-called pose estimation, which posture or pose in the sense is just the geometric configuration of the limbs. Uh, it was really, really impressive what they were getting in 2016, 2017. But they were training it on these massive data sets that, say, had 40,000 individual humans with, you know, 26,000 labeled individual points. Uh, so that's not quite scalable for the lab setting, right? I didn't want to collect, you know, hundreds of mice and label them to train these uh, classifiers. So, which is effectively what a deep neural network will do at the end. Um, and so for us, it was really a matter of saying exactly what you asked, like how much data was really required to get performance that would be reasonable in the lab setting. And so that's what we really set out to do early on is benchmark different algorithms um, to do that. And so we ended up benchmarking a subset of deeper cut, which then we called deep lab cuts. So that was the name. Um, it was a very nice algorithm uh, developed at Max Planck, actually. Uh, nod to <laughs> where we're currently sitting. Uh, not this one, but yeah. You get the gist. Uh, nonetheless, uh, what we found is that you can really get away with very little labeled data. So for the experiments in my lab, even the ones that we still run these networks every day on data that we collect across many different rigs, the network has been trained on, say, 200 images. And that's even, frankly, being generous. Um, <laughs> you know, we didn't say exactly which 200 you need to pick. So this is sort of randomly selecting over 200 frames, labeling these individual points, which take, you know, a matter of an hour or two of human actual interaction train the network and now this network can be used uh, you know for many years in my laboratory on the new mice that it's never seen or like slightly different camera angle changes or lighting conditions uh, at this point so so um we jumped uh, kind of immediately into deep lab cut uh but <laughs> if i want to like just dial back a little bit for uh maybe people who have not uh, for listeners who don't have a lot of experience with uh, the sort of modern methods of computer vision, um, deep learning has been around for uh, a bit, but uh, really um, people outside of a really specific esoteric field didn't know about it till like 2017. 
Uh, so the whole point behind this, right, is instead of having to design uh, manually features, like you were saying, people did things like background subtraction, you know, you, you could program an algorithm to uh, track a mouse by saying, okay, look for things that are really dark in a really bright, bright background exactly. and maybe have this uh, wiggly thing in the back. But it would, it would be really, really bad when it would deal with any kind of new scenario. So, for example, one mouse climbing over another, another mouse is like right. this impossible tracking problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then come these things like convolutional neural networks, uh, which we can just take a bunch of data uh, that you've labeled before of uh, animals moving around, and then you can uh, feed it into the system, and then it can spit out the kind of labels that you want it to have. So you can feed in a bunch of images with labels. Uh, it'll be able to mimic whatever you trained it with, and it'll be able to do it on new animals. So what you're saying is that you know now you have this network that you can train on only 200 Im- images of let's say not just mice right of of anything of a fly, mm-hmm. um, and it will track the proboscis of the fly. It'll track its feet, uh, and and so I'm amazed, uh, like you said, that you know you only have to have something like 200 images for this mm-hmm. to work. Is this you know for people who um, are pretty familiar with with deep learning they know that a lot of the time you know these these are the same algorithms that facebook uses uh to do object identification of photos i mean they Mm -hmm. feed in literally billions of images so how is it that this works so well is it because the images that we collect are so similar to each other is it because mice don't do a lot of interesting stuff i mean (laughs) is it because they're all coming from the same camera no. Uh, so, in fact, uh, even our original networks in the paper are trained from different cameras and across different mice. Um, mice do really cool stuff, and it doesn't have to be just mice, as you say. So, really, the trick uh, is to essentially extrapolate from exactly, as you say, what Facebook is doing with object recognition is the networks that we use were pre-trained on a rarely large data set of images. So, you can think that these networks are the so-called weights, which sort of fine-tune the features that you get at the end, um, they're sort of imbued with really good natural image statistics. And so if you take a random deep neural network that's sort of seeded randomly, uh, you won't get this sort of robustness or generalization across animals as well. Um, And so that's what we've seen. You can train networks that haven't been pre-trained on an individual animal, and it'll do a very nice job because you're essentially overfitting to your training data set. Uh, But if you really want this um, level of robustness that we ended up being able to provide, uh, it's really this notion of transfer learning or taking this network that's learned this other task, i.e. object recognition, and then training it on a new task, which is i.e. mouse knuckles on their digits. So you essentially have a network that has that that's learned a bunch of stuff. It almost has an intuition of how to track animal movement. I think and, that's a fair word you know, to use. I mean, not formally, but that's yes. right. <laughs> and and then you just give it like kind of a new scenario. So it's almost as somebody knows the English language, but you're teaching him a couple of new words. Yeah, yeah, that's. I think that's fair. So even though um, the data set it's trained on is called ImageNet, which doesn't have, say, monochrome images, which are often used in lab settings, uh, this still works very well. Um, you can use any camera, so it's really invariant to the hardware that you use. So whether it's your iPhone or your Android or a scientific camera or even you know a PlayStation Eye camera that you can use in the lab and build for $9, like any of these things will work uh, with this tool. So that's that's unique, I think. So as somebody who who who's not who doesn't use this stuff on a day to day basis, so you're saying that before you introduce Deep Lab Cut to you know movies of you know animals that you want to track specific spots, you're training the network on a generalized set of natural images. So so what does that 
what happens if you don't do that? I mean, what what is it extracting from that that allows it to help generalize individual data sets that come from any arbitrary animal, basically? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, if you only train it without having this pre-training, what we find is that if you have sufficiently different data, it does a very poor job of generalizing to these new things. I like a new mouse that might look slightly different. And it's still a very active area of research. Like this is not a solved problem for humans or for animal uh, pose estimation, if you will. But you can think of a scenario where you say you have 30 different horses and they all have different coat colors, um, but you only train it on a handful of those horses or say only one of those horses, how well is that network going to do on the other set of say 29 horses or 25 horses is still quite a challenging problem to be totally honest. Um, and so we also work on this robustness problem or this generalization of these networks. But in the settings that we're talking about, namely in the laboratory or even in the wild, frankly, but you're training on kind of data that the network has been trained on is sort of the network you want it to perform on. So what we consider like within domain um, data, then these networks do an incredible job. And then the transfer learning just really boosts even those little tiny things that might not be so noticeable to you, uh, but the networks could pick up on to see differences. Uh, they can still be quite robust in those situations. So that's the type of robustness that we, we gain from using transfer learning. Uh, so you mentioned in the lab and then in the wild. Mm -hmm. um, so this became a popular tool uh, quickly, and uh, a lot of different um, neuroscience labs started using it, but not just that, right? You right. could see applications in a lot of different animal behavior studies. That's true. Uh, so can you, uh, are there any applications that you saw that you're just like, oh man, I never thought that this would be even a field where this is applicable? <laughs> yeah, uh, lots of things. Uh, it truly surprised us, right? I mean, when we started, we had a very... Um, specific question, that biological question that we really started with. So we didn't actually set out to make this generalizable tool. So very early on, especially, uh, we were quite amazed and it, it's still quite amazing the different applications that people do in science. And in that way, it's been an extreme privilege to have uh, access to seeing all this really cool science that we've been exposed to. Um, but early on, there is a, a researcher, Amir Patel at the University of uh, Cape Town in South Africa, who is looking at the tail biomechanics to look at high-speed turns in cheetahs. And they actually did mark the cheetahs uh, previously. They put no, little... They put little, like, tape dots on the tail. These are cheetahs <laughs> at a sanctuary. But this was really hard. Right. <laughs> I mean, for obvious reasons. No one was harmed um, in the making of this podcast That's or otherwise. Um, but, you know, this was a really challenging problem. And so we said, wow, this is, is quite cool. They want, like, full 3D reconstruction of these cheetahs. It can be raining. It can be sunny. It's in the wild. Um, so that was very fun. So, of course, it takes more than 200 images. That networks across six cameras. It's about 800. But still, across six cameras, this is uh, not a, a crazy amount of work, to be frank. Um, so, how do, I, I mean, how do they get a, a reproducible cheetah high-speed turn, <laughs> like, right awesome. on camera? Like, are right. these... Are these uh, I assume they're just running Are for food and somebody jumps out and says, boom. <laughs> right. Are they wild cheetahs? Uh, no, they're cheetahs in a sanctuary. Okay. And what they do is they have exercise runs where they chase like a fake lure and they love like chasing these things on essentially a rope. Um, and so the rope will go forward and back. Like you can think of like a little Just towel. big, fast kitties. Just big, fast kitties. Exactly. It's like a super laser pointer for And a they cheetah, just don't want to run right? into the camera so they turn off at the last minute? Uh, no, because the, the rope comes back. Oh, so okay. like, you know, the flag comes back. And so they set up that turn point where they kind of have like a camera trap if you will. And so they have six cameras around uh, the point where the cheetahs typically make the turns. I think it's, it's not my science. So if, if I get it wrong, I'm sorry, Amir. That's okay. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really interesting how different that is from like studying mouse. So far removed. Exactly. I think yeah. I've seen this picture too. It's like on your, on the 
deep lab cut Twitter like avatar is like a cheetah with like laser <laughs> eyes. It looks like. Ah, uh, yeah, we had a, a journal cover with the with okay, the cheetah. Yeah, was, we yeah. ended up uh, using that data with Amir and and a paper last year, last summer, was published. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of one example that's maybe I'm more familiar with. But in, in the sense, people use it for biomechanics studies, for human studies, for clinical applications, um, for surgery robots, for octopuses in the wild, cuttlefish, so cool. which are changing colors, like things that I never would have even thought to try these albums on, to be frank. So it's been really, really cool to see. Uh, so while that was uh, blowing up, was there a time when you were like, oh, um, let's monetize this right now? <laughs> no. Um, really? I mean, I just, you know, it seems like a, a fairly straightforward uh, thought process for a lot of people, right? <laughs> sure. No, it was a conversation, uh, but it was one we very much actively took uh, very early on, actually, I would say even before the maybe the blowing up component. Um, that certainly surprised us. Um, but we, we really felt uh, very strongly that, you know, we were sh building on the shoulders of giants and we really felt like there wasn't something that we wanted to monetize out of this, that we wanted to give back to the research field in that way. Um, we just happened to do it first. Doesn't mean we're the, the best or the most talented at this. Um, and yeah, once it became a thing that we wanted people to have access to, right? Like tech and these different things shouldn't be for a privileged few that can afford it. Um, and so I haven't liked some aspects of academia that way, right? Things can be extremely expensive and, um, yeah. So I think early on, uh, Alex and I made a very active decision that we did not want to monetize that. No. So does that come with any kind of, um, I mean, the, the, from, from an academic point of view, that's like, that's, that's, I think that we all benefit from your choices there. Um, what if Disney uses it? Would you make them pay for it? <laughs> no, the license is uh, for commercial applications can also use it. So there's actually, uh, yeah, no, they can use it. So, so, but, you know, I, I can, I have this question about like when you create one of these amazingly successful open source toolboxes, which is like you sort of become your own help desk, though. So you yes. have to like you're the person who's going to the person who can't install and be like, did you restart your computer? Like, so how do you deal yes. with, with so that? a little bit like talking level? shop, right? I get questions yeah. like this and I never know it. Should I reply to you or is this too much? Right. Yes. That is a really valid point. Um, yeah, I think it raises really two important issues. Uh, yes. Early on it is, it is a huge, um, privilege and burden for the developers of such software because you put in a lot of extra time that, uh, certainly like quote unquote would take away from my day-to-day -day research agenda in my lab. And as a, you know, young PI having just started my lab two and a half years ago, that's a risk. Um, but at the same time, I felt that for me personally, if there's certainly much more science that I could enable by just being helpful and putting these tools into the world that I could have done myself in the last two and a half years. So I feel good about that. Um, but it does raise an interesting point about funding. So like, for example, if you wanted to have someone that could just help people and do this, uh, where do you get that money from? Because, you know, NIH, NSF, these types of funding agencies typically want to fund things that aren't already done, right? Like we don't submit grants on papers that were published last year. Um, and of course, this was done and it was done fast and <laughs> I can't get grant money essentially to maintain this. And so we were very, very lucky last year when there was a call from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative for Open Source Science. Um, tools. And so we applied for that, which was, uh, and wonderfully got it. So that really allowed us actually to hire someone to help not only on the back end coding, but then for these type of support questions so that it's not just Alex and I's uh, hobby to be frank. So it's good to have one more team member on that front. So what kind of, uh, background do you 
think people should sort of have going into using this sort of thing? Is there are there any sort of shortcuts they can take or like, you know, uh, tips that you might have for what kind of like. So like you know, essentially if, you know, when we teach people about the existence of such a tool, mm-hmm. people want to know, OK, uh, I don't know what deep learning is or convolutional neural networks or right, uh, right. I don't know how to code. What does it take for somebody uh, to actually use this? Somebody wants to track their animals. Yes. So right now, um, certainly in the last year and a half, we've put a major uh, sort of focus into making it more and more user friendly. So at this point, I would go as far as to say is you don't need to know any programming language. So uh, kids can use it. It comes as a self-contained GUI. Uh, The challenge is, of course, is that we rely on the shoulders of giants, namely that there are tools like TensorFlow that can be harder to install. Um, so that's kind of the major limitation for us is like getting deep learning tools into like the hands of users is there's a little bit of a fine balance on installing it because um, it's not an easy thing to make just an executable package out of at this point, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think having a little bit of command line knowledge is useful for installation, uh, but we provide sort of tools and a lot of documentation. I think if you printed all the pages of the documents on our uh, GitHub, it's about like 45 pages worth of documentations on sort of the sub features. Everybody just turned off the podcast. <laughs> yeah, like, Never mind. I can't no, use but, this. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't need to read that at all. So if you want to go through the API, like everything is developed. So if you're a programmer and want to tweak it, it's very easy to do. If you don't have any coding experience, um, there's ongoing conversations about getting into like K through 12 educational um, type of programs. So I think that's you know, don't be turned off by this. I think you can you can really uh, do this even if you have no programming experience. So, um, getting back to some of the the applications, um, what you know, when you started your lab, you said I think two and a half years ago. What were some of the uh, goals that you were shooting for? Like, you know, what you had developed deep lab cuts. Um, it, it serves a scientific role for you, but beyond that, there's probably stuff that you know even you would be doing other than deep lab cut with adaptive motor control and that sort of thing. What are some of the, the open problems in motor control that your lab is focused on? Yeah, good question. Um, so yeah, our lab is very much interested in sort of the algorithmic and sort of architectures, if you will, if we want to keep in the deep learning language of the brain and how these different areas enable learning. And so for us, motor skills are a really interesting way to look at how the brain changes when someone is sort of actively being challenged from the world, whether that's a hard problem or just a physical change in the world. How do you adapt to this? Um, so we really use it in, I would say, every experiment that we do in our lab. Uh, somehow it's involved. So even very simple tasks like we would consider classical conditioning. You know, we look at things like the pupil of the mouse changes to give different states. Now this is very easy to track and automate. Um, body movements. Um, But big open questions for us were also just simple things that um, might not actually seem that exciting, but are really, really powerful in the way that we want to think about the proprioceptive and motor system, and proprioception being the sense of where your body is in space. Um, So even in natural things like their home cage, like how does a mouse spend most of their day? What do they do? Um, We want to be able to completely non-invasively track them. And a video is a very good way to do that, to sort of take the life of an animal and put it into a sort of lower dimensional space, i.e. once you extract these labels, then you have the sort of lower dimensional embedding of an animal's um, movements and 
history through time. And so we're really interested in how animals learn even over these much longer timescales, including these sort of shorter timescales. So I, we literally teach mice to play with a joystick and give them rewards and see how they can adapt to say a changing reward landscape, or if the force on the joystick changes, they can update their world, or say they have a video game and they have to run down kind of a Mario Kart style world. Uh, how can they adapt um, their body movements to sort of efficiently control themselves on these types of situations? So we do all these types of uh, perturbations, experiments in the lab. Uh, so one of the one of the kind of real cool things that happens once you have these lower dimensional data sets, you know, you've taken videos down to uh, you know coordinates basically over time, uh, is you can start tweezing out things that you weren't looking for before, right? So uh, various you could use whatever unsupervised methods to figure out, hey, look, uh, here's a thing that a mouse is doing that we weren't ever really noticing, but it seems to be correlated with some other behavior. Have you discovered anything that you feel like you wouldn't have you wouldn't have found um, if you didn't just have this now what I assume is a crazy large amount of labeled data that you didn't have to manually label? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, I think it also leads to a, a larger body of work, right? There's, there has been a, a lot of work also, I mean, Basically, Deep Lab Cut is the supervised approach where you determine what the labels are. But on the flip side, there's been quite a lot of work in this sort of unsupervised regime to say, let's take the raw video and look and see if there's any changes um, or different states of the animal and behavior. So, for example, a colleague, uh, Bob Data, has motion sequencing or MoSeq, what they call, and they kind of showed that they can very nicely, you know, in, in, in specific situations, uh, see if an animal has been given a drug, if they change their behavior, and if there's even like fine fine details uh, from this approach that can be different. Sort of a different class of problems than looking at um, pose estimation. But nonetheless, the output, as you suggest, um, allows you to now to ask these questions about what are the differences. So for me, we're really focused on um, motor control. And so the types of things that we do post-talk might be a little different than, say, looking for changes in behaviors across uh, an animal given a drug or not. Um, we look more at like, joint configurations and trying to solve sort of inverse kinematics to say, how is the muscle changing? If you can simulate this, because you now have the full constraints of the arm, for example. Um, but people are certainly doing this. Um, lots of work that I, I probably can't talk about that I'm aware of, because sure. we don't necessarily do it in our lab right now. But I think it's a, a really fascinating question of like, you have 10,000 hours of continuous data from an animal's life. Uh, what are you going to do with that and what type of things can you look at over much longer time scales than was ever possible before? So I think the jury's still out, but I'm, I'm quite excited about the next, you know, six months to year of data. Yeah. You, you have basically uh, the same problem that Amazon and Facebook have, right? Yeah. They know everything about <laughs> us and they're like, what can we figure out? Right. And you're doing that's, it with animals. That's Yours true. is a little bit more ethical. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it sort of seems like, I mean, part of what like Deep Lab Cut is doing is it's taking, it's giving, it's it's buying you a ton of time because you don't have to go in and manually digitize all, all these Absolutely. individual points on the animal. So it's cut out this huge chunk of the workflow for you and freed you up to do stuff like, you know, ask new questions yeah. about, you know, what the animals are doing. But now it's tempting to think you use these, unsuper or these unsupervised approaches and they can take all the hypothesis building out of it. For That's you. right. So you essentially... It's a lot cheaper to do fishing expeditions with your data, I guess right? So. Because you don't need to design experiment from the bottom up and say, I'm going to hire two students to label these videos for the next three years. Right. Are you worried that your 
autumn you're, you're you're basically leading to the complete automation of neuroscience <laughs> no <laughs> why are, why are you coming for my job <laughs> no, no no i'm not here to take your job i'm here to help you make it easier um but i think you touched on a really good point so i think in general i've seen sort of two classes of users if i'm really making broad strokes here um those that if just replacing this manual label part, but it was really this hypothesis-driven science that this just would have taken longer to do, and now it takes less time, right? And I sort of personally have largely fallen into that camp. It's not that I'm not immune to fishing expeditions, but that's sort of where it was built for. Um, but then there's, of course, now it's really easy to do this. And so if you have a video camera and you have a behavior, Let's just see what else you can get out of the data, which then it is not an easy question, right? It's not that Deep Lab Cut solves those issues for you or gives you a straight answer. It's just that it's taken that uh, sort of physical labor out of it. For me, I'm, I'm actually quite excited about some of this uh, physical labor part because, you know, historically the people that were doing the labeling are sort of undergraduates or young students, and they're not really getting the same experience in a lab. So now the undergraduates that work in my lab are, you know, engineering new behaviors or they're working on new network architectures or like really doing research. And so for me, I mean, I think it's actually quite exciting. If I yeah, would have been an undergraduate, cool. I would have been really excited instead of like manually labeling data. So. Right. Counting cells. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. that's now yeah. all automated. We've all right? clicked so many times. Yes, we've, exactly. We've yeah. clicked and we've had people click and felt the guilt. Like. <laughs> exactly. Do you feel uh, Do you feel bad making students? Uh, I I always struggle with this. I feel bad making students label training data. Um, however, I am told that the students actually kind of love it because it makes them learn what the experiments are a little bit better, and they're okay with being lower in the totem pole in the whole experiment. Well, and 200 frames is nothing. Yeah. That's, yeah, I guess 200 <laughs> frames is not so bad. But the young kids don't even know that that's nothing. Right. <laughs> so that's right. That's right. <laughs> there's a new problem, right? Um, but no, I don't. I think, I mean, I, I think my perspective on this is, is I would feel guilty having them label for years and not being able to do anything with that information. Um, I don't think that's the case now. And I think they get to do science with that information that they get. And also, you know, this is not a solved, there's many challenges left, right? Like you brought up this notion of, you know, two black mice crossing each other is still not a solved problem. Like multi-human pose estimation is arguably an easier challenge. Like the three of us all look different at this table. We could easily segment that where two black mice look really similar. So those are active areas of research that um, our lab and others work on. So I think it's still, um, even if you have to do the labeling, one, you get a better sense of the data because essentially your data set is your, uh, what trains your deep neural network. And so your data set really becomes everything, right? If it's a biased network or if it's not a biased network, what your data goes in. I mean, that's a huge problem outside of just animal pose estimation, of course. Um, but no, I think, I think it allows them to, to do science with that and still get the intuition of what the question is, just in a shorter time frame. It seems like um, from how you talk about motor control and also the deep learning stuff um, that you have, it seems like you're sort of looking for general principles of computations that can do stuff. Mm -hmm. um, is there is there sort of a, a back and forth there? I mean, I know that deep learning tools are useful for handling your data. Is there anything that you think that you can learn from the brain that will maybe be applicable to um, machine learning or AI and things like that going forward? Yes. I mean, historically, that is absolutely like these neural networks are so-called neural networks because they take a lot of inspiration from the brain, right? Like many people say, and this is not an original thought, but, you know, the brain is sort of a symbol of 
uh, one of the highest levels of intelligence. And so it would be sort of silly to not look at the brain as a source of inspiration for making smarter machines. Um, I think practically speaking, there's a difference between saying I want to implement a biological neuron into a neural network versus taking inspiration from these things. So I sort of fall in this later camp of saying, you know, in the same lab, we have people that do sort of pure machine learning. We have people that do pure experimentation and data analysis, but they intermix and talk. And a lot of the same questions that we care about, like transfer learning is also how do you teach an animal multiple tasks or sequences of tasks? Like these are sort of similar language that I think can really be uh, beneficial for thinking about problems, even beyond sort of the applied machine learning approaches. So like how in motor control can you generalize from one workspace, right? I can pick up my water glass here and I can equally do this here. This is very different muscles and arm configuration that I'm using to do this. This is much like asking a neural network to sort of shift gears, if you will. Um, so we think a lot about how to, you know, potentially use the insights from adaptive brains to build better adaptive machines and better adaptive robots. So, um, you know, another thing that sort of pops out when you look at your CV is, you know, even before you were in graduate school, you had you have a background that is based in the motor system. So I noticed that you were working with Chris Henderson and Henrik Wichterle at um, Columbia working on ALS mm -hmm. stuff. Um, what is, I mean, what originally drew you to like, to that, and then also to continue working on motor? I mean, it seems like a lot of things change sort of going yes. from like a molecular biology background, maybe mm -hmm. to, I'm sort of, you know, projecting onto here, but then maybe more <laughs> systems so. level stuff. Yes. Of course. Um, what, what, what draws you to motor control that has sort of been a, a, you know, constant theme in your career? Right. Um, it's true. I have been sort of fascinated by the motor system, I think, probably for two reasons. One, it's it's just remarkable what animals or humans can do and just like the span of evolution and how, you know, you go from flies to cheetahs and how specialized they can be in their motor outputs. Um, you know, sort of. Yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing just to think about, you know, motor output is really the expression of a lot of our thinking and our daily life. And so I think the motor system in general is a really cool way to look at insights into the brain and also happens to be maybe one of the easier things because you can externally understand observe what the it. body is doing and observe it. So I think in that perspective, um, I've always been interested in it. I did get into more of a molecular sort of clinical, actually, sort of uh, translational approaches early on because when the motor system fails, it's sort of catastrophic, right? Like neurodegenerative diseases are, you know, many of them are untreatable um, and a very poor prognosis. And so it's really remarkable that it's such a system that we you know, rely on so heavily for our daily lives. If it breaks, it can go so badly wrong. And so if you really want to understand how to fix that, you really need to understand how this machinery works. So it's certainly, you know, going forward also in my career, when I moved to Switzerland, a large part of this is also to be back to a more sort of translational and clinical approaches and using the insights from, uh, you know, deep learning inspired methods to bring that back into the motor domain for rehabilitation and for clinical applications. So uh, that's actually, a, I think, a pretty, pretty good point to wrap up on. So um, what does the future hold? Uh, for Mackenzie Mathis. So you're you're uh, moving to a new country and starting a new lab in August. Yes. Uh, why are you doing this to us? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't personal. I'll still, <laughs> I'll still be the support desk. Don't worry. Um, yeah, I mean, so essentially as a, as a Roland Fellow, as you read my CV, it's a very amazing, you know, cool program that they have at Harvard for people that are essentially just post their PhD to do cutting-edge research that's, um, you know, supported by the Land Foundation. Um, 
nonetheless, it is a temporary position. So you have five years and then you have to get a real job, as I like to say. Um, and so, you know, I think staying in academia was always sort of a clear path for me um, that I wanted to do. And I'm very lucky that I can continue to do the work that I'm doing there. Um, and EPFL is remarkably strong in motor neuroscience and also computer vision. So for me and also for Alex, it was sort of a perfect merger of, you know, mountains, uh, motor control and AI. So <laughs> it seemed like a good move. That's awesome. Well, um, people should, uh, should should check you out on Twitter. You're at, you're at tracking, tracking actions. That's right. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Mackenzie Mathis. Um, Stay tuned for more great uh, adaptive motor control research from her lab. This has been a production by the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. You can listen in on iTunes or SoundCloud. Follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at NeuroPodcast. 